Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Corinthians chapter 13, if I begin to sneeze, it's because I'm starting to have allergies. It's that time of year as the corn starts tasseling and other things start happening. So pray that I don't have a sneezing fit up here <laughs> this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, some of you are really big into music. You tend to watch the billboard charts to see what songs are on the top of the charts. I'm usually not one of those, but back in 1957, they began charting the number one hits on the billboard music charts. And and as you think about the themes of music, if you think about the themes of movies, the themes of television shows, it seems like love is the major theme. All the way back to Shakespeare's sonnets to ancient literature, love seems to be on everybody's mind. Now, I was born in 1971, and so I went back and checked to see since um, 1971 how many Billboard number one songs have the title Love in them. And there were 68 songs that had the title Love in it. And so we think about songs like, I love rock and roll. No, you don't, I want you to sing the rest of it. When a man loves a woman, love is in this club. Let me love you. I want to love you. Crazy in love. You can think about all the Beatles songs that have love in them. Um, all you need is love. She loves you and I love her. Can't buy me love. All my loving, it's only love and on and on and on. Everything's about love. Now, I went to Netflix and I looked to see how many song or how many movie titles had the, the title love in a movie. And anybody want to take a guess? How many movie titles have the, the word love in the title? Anybody want to guess? 3,000 movies. It's amazing. Love actually, P.S. I love you. Love story, love affair, love comes softly, the love guru, love stinks, must love dogs. We use that word a lot, don't we? I love pizza. I love my dog. I love to ski. I love the Broncos. I love my grandkids. I love that movie. I love my wife. I love Jesus. We use the word love all the time, don't we? How many of you remember the Tina Turner song from the 80s, What's Love Got to Do With It? It's just a second-hand emotion, right? There's, there's, no, there's no big deal to it. It's just a secondhand emotion. We talk so much about love in our culture. It seems like by now we should have it figured out, right? Americans should know what this whole business of loving each other is all about. But do we? Do we truly understand Christian love? Do we understand God's love for us? And so as Christians, we've got to ask a very important question. How do we love? Love one another. What's love got to do with it? Is it just a second-hand emotion? Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and look at the most famous expression of love. And before we do that, I just want to stop and say thank you for last week. Uh, Last week I preached very long, very difficult topic. Everybody was attentive. And thank you for your comments, and I appreciate all the prayers that went into last week. I promise my sermon won't go over an hour today, so just rest assured. We're not, somebody's saying right on over there. <laughs> okay. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. You should be very familiar with this. 
Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never ends. Okay, you've got, count them, 15. Okay, so I've got a 15-point sermon today. Are you ready? Okay, it's going to go fast. But 15 descriptions of love right here in this passage. It's probably the most comprehensive description of genuine biblical love. Now, let me give you some, a little bit of Greek lesson here. In your English texts, these are all adjectives. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's a description. But in the original language... These are present active verbs. Huge difference there. Which means that these are things that we are to put into practice as concrete actions on a continual, ongoing lifestyle basis. So when we talk about love, it's not a mushy feeling. It's not a sentiment. It's not a secondhand emotion. These are things that we are to be actively, concretely, consistently displaying in our lives. There's an old DC talk song back in the day, Love is a Verb. And that's basically what Paul is saying here. Love is known more by what it does and doesn't do more so than how it feels. Now, I'm not saying feeling's not important. Yes, there is emotion involved in that, but that's not all it is. Christian love extends far beyond just a feeling. So, let's look at these 15 descriptions. So here's the first one. Love practices patience. It practices patience. The word literally means long-suffering. And it often has to do with patience with people as opposed to circumstance or events. Now, I have to tell you, I was really prepared to preach this message up until yesterday when I went to Walmart. Because the first one on the list is love is patient. And I'm standing there in line with Don, and I'm impatient. We're walking there. We go to the, 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 you know, the speedy checkout, and, of course, the guy in front of us, his debit card doesn't work, so they try it 8,000 different times. He has to go to the ATM, get money, and I'm thinking in my mind, let's just get out of Walmart. I was so impatient. At that moment, I was not loving that man. I was not loving that clerk. I was just wanting to get out of there. And here's what patience is. is. Impatience. Okay. Where does impatience stem from? It stems from pride, doesn't it? Because here's what you think. I deserve the treatment. I'm somehow better. I need to have the world revolve around me. Everybody's got to come to my beck and call. I deserve to have speedy treatment. I'm entitled to these things. And so when we think of practicing patience, we need to really root this in how God treats us. All of these descriptions of love that we reflect to other people really come from God's treatment of us. So think about patience for a moment. When you think about God, In the Old Testament, when God revealed himself to Moses on the mountain, God expressed who he is. And this expression of who God is is repeated all throughout the Old Testament. It's basically the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Here it is. It's from Exodus 34.6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The Lord is patient. Psalm 86, 15, but you, O Lord, are a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding 
and steadfast love. Think about this for a moment. If God was not slow to anger, if God was not patient with us, how many of us would be alive today? Roger Ingersoll was a well-known atheist. And in his lectures, he would often try to prove the, dis, the, the existence that God didn't exist. And so he would stop in the middle of his lecture and say, okay, I'm going to give God five minutes to destroy me for all the things I've said for, uh, against him. And so he'd sit there and wait for five minutes. And after five minutes, if he wasn't destroyed, he'd go, ha, that proves God doesn't exist because I gave him five minutes to come and strike me dead. And somebody common, uh, commenting on this said, well, that's interesting to think that he could exhaust the patience of an eternal God in merely five minutes. We can't. This is a wonderful passage of Scripture, 1 Timothy 1, 15-16. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his what? Perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Christ has shown us perfect patience. And in turn, as Christians, we are called to show that patience to others in love. Proverbs 14, 29, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Proverbs fifteen eighteen: A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Proverbs nineteen eleven. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. So number one, love practices patience. I've often wondered why that's first on the list, but that's what God decided to do. Number two, love practices kindness. Now, it doesn't just mean to feel kind, yes, but it's actually to put that kindness into concrete action. We act kindly to one another. And again, the perfect example of kindness comes with God himself. In Romans 2, 4, God says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Now, often, let's just be real honest. Isn't it very difficult to express these expressions of love to the people that we're the closest with, the people that we live in the same house with? Sometimes it's easy to love those kids over in Africa that we see on TV, but it's a lot harder to sit and love our children and our wife in practical ways. And so kindness is more than just feeling kind towards someone. What would happen if Dawn comes home from the Walmart again and she has a big load of groceries and I have every intention of going out and helping her unload the groceries or do the laundry or do the dishes and I'm, I really, really feel kind towards Dawn, but I don't actually go and actually help her. Is that kindness? No, I can feel all day long kindness towards Dawn, but until I actually go express it in concrete action, I've not practiced love. Good intentions are just that. They're good intentions, but they're not truly putting these things into practice. Okay, so patience, kindness. What's the next one? Love does not envy. Now, envy has two forms. The first form of envy is this. I want what someone else has. I'm jealous. I'm jealous of her good looks. I'm jealous of his nice-paying job. I'm jealous of their nice family. I am jealous that things always seem to go right for them. I'm jealous. That's the first expression of envy. But a, a more subtle expression of envy is this. 
I want bad for them. I'm, I'm jealous. I want things to go bad for them. I wish evil upon them. I wish they didn't have what they had. I wish something would happen. I wish he'd fall off a cliff and die. I wish their family was torn apart. I wish he'd, he'd get caught and lose his job. I wish they'd have a financial down struggle and, and struggle. I wish they would get sick. The word envy here is an interesting word in the original language. It's the word zelo'o. We get our word zealous from that. It means to have a strong desire of jealousy. Does jealousy ever go good in the Bible? What are some biblical examples of jealousy? Eve was jealous of God. She wanted to be like God, and therefore she ate the forbidden fruit. Cain was jealous of Abel. He killed his brother. Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery out of jealousy. Daniel was thrown into lion's den because the rulers were jealous of him. The older brother in the prodigal son story was jealous of his younger brother. Love is not jealous. Proverbs 27.4 says this, Wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? Jealousy. And then notice what James says. This is kind of a scary passage of Scripture when you stop and really think about it. James 3, 14 through 16. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. You want to know where Satan's at work? When you're jealous. He says it's demonic. Jealousy is almost demonic. It's, it, it's going to bring all types of disorder, all types of problems. So, love does not practice jealousy. All right, let's look at number four. Love does not boast, or it doesn't brag. It's the only time this word is used in the New Testament right here. What Paul uses, it really means to talk conceitedly, to parade your accomplishments, to always be running your mouth and saying, look at me, look at me, look what I'm doing. Um, I don't know if you've ever watched the, the comedian that has the me monster uh, videos where it's always about me. It's always about me. And so what was going on here in Corinth, especially in the context of what Paul is writing, is they were, they were puffing themselves up. They were, they were showing off. They were trying to display all the spiritual gifts and all these types of things in this conceited manner. And so Paul says, calm down. Don't brag. Don't be conceited. Love does not boast. And again, what's our ultimate example of humility? Who is our ultimate example of what it means to be humble? Jesus. In Philippians 2, 6-8. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with, a God, with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Humility. Humility. Now it's interesting because the next one, number five, is love is not arrogant. Now you may ask, what's the difference between boasting and arrogance boasting is more of the verbal expression of look at me look at me always talking about me arrogance more the attitude the smugness the air of superiority that you have over someone you've kind of walk around with this air that i'm better than everybody else i'm superior the whole world needs to bow down to me it's a very interesting story in john chapter three uh, john the baptist is baptizing 
And guess who shows up? Jesus. Jesus shows up right in the same area where John the Baptist is baptizing, and everybody's going to Jesus. And so John the Baptist's disciples go to John the Baptist, and they say, hey, buddy, you've got to be concerned because everybody's going to Jesus. We're losing customers. You've got to be concerned because our, our turf is being invaded upon by Jesus. And John the Baptist says, now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let's not get prideful or boastful. Here's what John says in John 3, 27 through 30. John answered, and I love this, a person cannot receive one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Underline that in your Bible. It's a great verse to live by. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. It's John the Baptist. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, that's John the Baptist, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Now circle verse 30. He must increase, I must decrease. That's humility. It's all about Jesus gaining popularity and me not. Do you realize that pride, arrogance, boasting is one of the the, the major sins in the Bible that God hates? God hates pride. Just take a, a walk through the Proverbs. Proverbs eight thirteen, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Tell us how you really feel about it, God. You hate it. Proverbs eleven two. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs sixteen eighteen. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 29, 23, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. John MacArthur says this, I like it, arrogance is big-headed, love is big-hearted. Love is big-hearted, arrogance is big-headed. Okay? Let's look at number six. Love does not act rudely. Or rude, very at the beginning of verse 5, rudely. The issue here is about, about being sensitive to others around you. You act crassly, you act rudely, you, you're overbearing, you're just plain crude. What was going on in 1 Corinthians? If you go back and read 1 Corinthians, there was a lot of problems in that church. But one of the big problems was, is they were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, and they were going to the potluck, and the people that had the food were, were like just pushing people out of the way, and everybody was trying to get to the food first, and all this stuff was going on. And Paul stops them in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty one and says, For an eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, another gets drunk he's saying you guys have no grace for one another you're just being plain rude that's what being rude means you act without grace you're not putting on display the grace of god you're not being gracious you're being rude you're being off-putting you're being overbearing and sometimes when you act that way in front of a non-christian and they see the rudeness of christians it's very off-putting there's nothing worse than a rude arrogant boastful crass christian it just turns non-Christians off to the truth. Okay, number seven. It does not insist on its own way. It does not actively seek out its own way. The word insist there is a very interesting word in the original language. I'm sorry, I've got a new microphone this morning and it's doing wacky things. Okay, to insist here means to hotly pursue. 
to be demanding, to always have people come to your beck and call, to insist upon your own way. Let me ask you in your Bibles, keep your finger there in 1 Corinthians, turn over to Matthew just for a moment. Turn over to Matthew chapter 20. We're going to look at a couple of stories here in the book of Matthew. It's kind of some illustrations of these things, but it doesn't actively, hotly insist on having its own way. Okay, let's look at Matthew 20, 20-28. Matthew 20, 20-28. You're probably familiar with this story. James and John were the sons of Zebedee. Their mom comes to Jesus. And let's pick up in Matthew 20, 20-28. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What? do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. And he said, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers because they probably didn't think of it first. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here's the issue. James and, James, James and um, John's mom comes to Jesus and says, I want to have my own way. I want to insist that you make a spot for my two sons to sit next to you in your kingdom. And the other 12 or the other 10 got really upset at him and said, what are you doing trying to, to, to jockey for position? And Jesus pulls them together and says, it's not about jockeying for position. It's about being, for, being last, being a servant. Okay, number eight. Love does not explode with Anger. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians for just a moment. Love does not explode with anger. Now, you may understand, where, where, where are you getting that? The ESV says it's not irritable. That's kind of a, a safe translation there. It really means to arouse to anger. A sudden outburst or convulsion of anger flying off the handle. Okay, the image here is a person that goes nuclear. You have to walk on eggshells around them. Okay, this microphone's really bugging me. Do you want, can I use the handheld mic? Thank you. Love is patient. <laughs> Televangelist walking around with the handheld mic. Where's my handkerchief and all that stuff? No, um, last week my normal microphone broke, and so we're waiting for the new ones to be ordered. So this is kind of the backup, and it's kind of chintzy. So anyway, let's keep moving because I'm getting distracted. It's love does not explode with anger. It means that you walk on eggshells around this person. You're always afraid they're going to erupt in anger. They're irritable. They're going to explode at any moment. Um, you're, you're not sure what you're going to do that's going to set that person off. Now, let's look at some Proverbs again because there's a lot of Proverbs that deal with anger. Proverbs 14.29. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Proverbs 15.1, 
A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs fifteen eighteen: a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Ecclesiastes 7, 8 through 9. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. And then in the New Testament, Ephesians 4, 26 through 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. It's interesting how there's the devil in there again with these these expressions of anger. In James 1, 19-20, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that, requ- that God requires. If you truly love someone, you're not going to explode. You're not going to go nuclear. You're not going to be irritable. You're not going to respond in anger. Okay, let's look at the next one. The ESV translates this, resentful. I think the NIV says keeps a record of wrongs. Literally, the word there is a banking term. It meant to make good good record keeping. When you when you when you're an accountant, you want to have good record keeping so you can go back and look at your books and make sure that things were put in the ledger and that things were accurately recorded. So when you're an accountant or you're a banker or you're keeping records, you want to make sure you keep a record, right? So you can go back and consult that in case something goes wrong. But what Paul's saying is when it comes to keeping a record, we don't want to do this when it comes to wrongs. We don't want to be meticulous. We don't want to always bring it up. We don't want to be resentful. We don't want to harbor bitterness. We want to be forgiving. Now, how would God treat us if he kept a record of our wrongs? Does God treat us according to how we should be treated as believers? Listen to Psalm 133 through 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, in other words, if you should keep a record of our sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The rhetorical answer is nobody could stand if God kept a record of our sin. And then in Romans 4, 7-8, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. Now, let's talk about forgiveness for a moment. If God has forgiven us in Christ, and he's totally wiped away our record, and he's not kept a record of wrong, we in turn are to forgive others as well. Turn back in your Bibles. Keep your finger in 1 Corinthians. Turn back to Matthew chapter 18. This is a startling story that Jesus tells based upon a question by Peter. So let's turn to Matthew 18, verse 21. Matthew 18, verse 21. Remember, love does not keep a record of wrong. Love forgives. Right, Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Peter's probably thinking, okay, in the Old Testament it was three Let's multiply it by two. They give six, and let's add one for good measure. How about seven, Jesus? I'm being really good here. And Jesus drops the bombshell on him and says, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven, which in math is what? 400 and 
490. Does that mean when the 491st time somebody wrongs you, you're not supposed to forgive them anymore? No, Jesus is using hyperbole here to show the extent to which we're to forgive. And then he gives a story, a very compelling story. So let's look at the story that Jesus gives here. Verse 23, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Okay, 10,000 talents, if you got a little footnote there, it's probably close to a million bucks. It's, it's, it's a huge amount that in that day nobody could ever repay. Okay, even if you won the lottery back in ancient Israel, you probably still wouldn't be able to repay this. And so Jesus uses a huge figure there to make a point. Verse 25, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. No, not really. There's no way you could have done that. Verse 27, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt, the million bucks or so. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. 50 bucks, let's say. Okay, so he'd just been forgiven a million. He finds a guy that owes him 50 bucks. He seizes him, begins to choke him, saying, pay me what you owe. I don't know if he said it like that, but I'm sure if he's choking him, he said it pretty, pretty, pretty rudely. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should have paid the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay back all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. We've been masterfully forgiven. Not just a million dollars, but this huge debt of sin, Christ has forgiven past, present, and future. And because of the gospel, we in turn are to forgive others with the same forgiveness that we've received from our gracious Heavenly Father. Okay, let's go back to 1 Corinthians and let's look at the list. We're on number 10, if you're keeping count. Number 10 starts in verse 6. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing or does not rejoice at sin. Isaiah chapter 5 Verse 20 says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Okay, here's the issue here. Love does not justify actions that are sinful. Love is honest about the truth. Here's the biggest issue, I think, that this is talking about. What does it mean to rejoice in wrong? How does that manifest itself in our lives? Gossip. Gossip. What is gossip? We want to talk about the juicy details about how somebody else is failing or how somebody else is doing something wrong. We rejoice. We salivate when somebody else is in sin. And love doesn't do that. Love doesn't rejoice when a brother or sister sins. Love doesn't gossip. Love doesn't salivate over what happens to someone. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20, listen to what Paul says. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, 
anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. Let me just say this about gossip. It is contagious. Have you ever been around people that gossiped? How hard is it to stop them from saying what they're about to say? Because what is our natural default? We want the juice. We want to rejoice. We want to know. And let me just say this. If somebody's going to gossip to you about another believer, your default as a Christian should be stop. I don't want to hear it. That is gossip. You're rejoicing at the wrongdoing of others. I don't want to hear it. That is so hard for Christians to do because we're hardwired in our flesh to what? We want to know what's going on. Gossip. Okay, number 11. Love rejoices with the truth. It rejoices with the truth. Now, this can mean two things. Number one, it rejoices when people are truthful, when people are telling the truth, when people are are communicating truth, they're being people of integrity. But I also think that love rejoices with the truth of Scripture, meaning this, true love cannot tolerate false doctrine. You cannot sacrifice doctrine on the altar of love. You sometimes have to confront someone A little bit of what I did last week, you've got to speak the truth in love. You rejoice with the truth. Listen to what Jude says in Jude chapter 1, verse 3. There's only one chapter of Jude, so verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend, to fight for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. You rejoice with the truth. Okay, here's number 12. Let's keep moving here. Starting in verse 7. Love bears all things. Bears is an interesting word there. It really means to protect. It can mean to empathize. You empathize with another person to the extent that you're willing to walk alongside them. You're willing to put your arm around them. You're willing to walk in the trenches with them. You are getting into their life and you're bearing their burdens. You're walking alongside them. You're empathizing with them. You're sympathizing with their pain. Now, who is the one person that has sympathized the most with us? Jesus. And he not only sympathized with what we're going through, but ultimately went to the point of extreme suffering, the cross. Listen to Hebrews 4, 15 through 16. It's talking about Jesus as our high priest. We do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Okay, Jesus is sinless. He's never sinned, but he's experienced everything we have, we've experienced, so he can sympathize with us. So, verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So what links are you willing to go to to sympathize with someone? to walk in empathy, to bear their burdens. Back in England, during the reign of Oliver Cromwell, there was a young man that was caught for treason or some type of crime, and he was going to be executed in the gallows. And the signal to execute him was when the bells rang. Now, he was engaged to this young woman, and this young woman went to Oliver Cromwell and said, please commute a sentence. Please, I love him. We're going to get married. Please have mercy on this man. So it came time for his execution, and the guy started pulling on the bells, and nothing happened. Nothing happened. What's going on? Why aren't the bells ringing? 
Well, the fiancé, the woman, had, claw, had climbed up into the belfry. She'd wrapped herself in the clappers, and when the bells started ringing, they kept banging against her body, and she was up there trying to prevent the bells from ringing with her own body. And so they finally figured out what was going on. They went and they brought her down. She was bruised. She was bleeding. They said, what are you doing? She's like, I don't want my fiancé to die, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suffer with him. And so Oliver Cromwell was so amazed at the empathy of this young fiancé that he eventually commuted the sentence of this young man and said, you've really shown some, some demonstrable love here. He's free. You're free. Go marry. That's some extreme lengths to go to empathize to bear the burdens of others. Love bears all things. Look at verse, um, uh, the, 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 the rest of verse 7. Love believes all things. Number 13, love believes all things. In other words, love is not suspicious. Love is not cynical. Love is not doubting. Love is willing to give the benefit of a doubt. Love seeks the best in another person. Love says they're innocent until proven guilty. Love says, I'm going to take risks to love this person, even if it means hurt or betrayal. When someone sins against you, what's your normal first impulse? I want to get back at them. I want to make things bad for them. I believe the worst about them. Love says no. My first response is to believe all things. To innocent till proven guilty, I'm going to forgive. I'm going to restore. I'm going to talk it out. I want to encourage. Galatians 6, 1 through 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Okay, number 14. Love hopes all things. True love is willing to say, that I believe that failure is not final with the person that I love. True love says, I believe that that wayward child will come back. True love says that that backslidden child or that backslidden spouse or that wayward sinner will repent. And I believe, I have the hope that God will do a work and bring that person back. Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that for those who love God... All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And then the last one, number 15, love endures all things. Endures is an interesting word in the original language. It means a military, it's a military term. It was like an army that gathered to take up its post and it held its positions at all costs. In other words, love says, I'm like a soldier, and I'm going to stand with you. I'm going to keep my place with you. I'm going to be in the trenches with you. I'm going I'm to endure all things for you. I'm going to face the battles for you. I'm never going to stop um, loving you. I'm going to believe. I'm going to hope. I'm going to stand with you. It's really the climax of, of everything we looked at. There's no exhaustion to love. It endures all things. Now, think about love for a moment. Is it just a secondhand emotion? No. The things we've been talking about, it can be brutal. It can be agonizing. It can be joyful. It can be exhilarating. It can be wonderful. It can be hard. Love is so, is so manifold in what it expresses. But, but the Bible says, I'm going to endure all things for those that I love. What did Paul say about his love 
for believers. In 2 Timothy 2, 10-13, he says, I endure everything. Now, let's just stop. It wasn't too long ago we were in Acts. Go back and remember, what are all the things that Paul endured? Go back and remember the sermons I preached the past few months. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Paul says, I endure all these things because I love people whom God has died for. But ultimately, endurance comes when we look to Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, 2 through 3, one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Looking to Jesus or fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. How can we endure in loving one another? Because Christ endured for us. It says keep our eyes on him. If he endured and we keep our eyes fixed on him, then he gives us the grace to endure in loving other people. It all comes back to the gospel. We can't do this in and of ourselves. It comes from looking to Jesus as the ultimate example and our Savior of one who endured all things so that we can endure all things in loving one another. Ephesians chapter 5, 1 through 2. Really, this is a culmination of this whole entire love chapter. Therefore, be imitators of God. Imitate God. How does God love us? Well, look at these list of love aspects that we've just looked at these 15 things that's how god loves us be imitators of god as beloved children and walk in love let your lifestyle be one of love let love mark who you are as a christian why how can we do it how can we imitate christ how can we walk in love well paul doesn't leave us in the dark what does he say as christ what loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. How can we love? Because Christ first loved us. How can we be imitators of God? Because God loved us. And when we become Christians, God places the Holy Spirit in our hearts. He gives us grace, and we in turn can love with this supernatural type of love that is not humanly possible without the gospel of grace. Now, Paul puts an exclamation point at the beginning of verse 8. What does the beginning of verse 8 say? Love never ends. Literally, it means love never falls. It's the imagery of a, of a flower withering, dying, and falling, decaying. It means love is permanent. Love is permanent to the end. It's not going to die. It's not going to decay. It's not going to wither. True Christian love will endure. Now, let's be real careful. This doesn't always mean that the things are going to go the way we want them to go when we love others. It doesn't mean that we define success the way God defines success. It doesn't mean that love never suffers or love never experiences pain or love never has risk or love never is betrayed. It doesn't mean that. It just means this, is that when we give ourselves in love to other people, we know that in the end, God's love will sustain us and true love will always win out. It will outlast any failures. 
And it's the highest and greatest of all Christian virtues. So as you think about your life as an individual, as a family, as a church, what's the highest thing, the highest virtue, the highest attribute that can characterize us as believers? It's got to be love. It's got to be love. Not a wishy-washy, mushy type of love that the world really thinks they understand, but they don't. But a true gospel-centered, Holy Spirit-empowered, looking to Jesus type of love that doesn't just feel it, but puts it into concrete action. So here's where the rubber meets the road this week. Go back over this list that we've looked at this week. What are some areas that you personally struggle with? What areas do you have issues with? And spend some time in prayer this week asking the Holy Spirit to give you strength to actually practice these, to practice these, especially among the people that you're the closest with. Like I said, it's easy to love the children in Africa that are dying of hunger. How about that coworker that sits next to you that drives you crazy? Or the child in your home that drives you crazy? Or your husband or wife that drives you crazy? I'm, I'm starting to meddle now. Okay. Love never ends. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And let's think about what's love got to do with it. If we were Paul and he heard Tina Turner's song, he'd say everything. But it's not the way that the world defines love, but it's God's definition of love. So spend some time in prayer this morning asking the Lord to reveal to you from his scriptures areas of weakness in your love, thinking about God's love for you. Just spend some time alone with the Lord in the quietness of this moment. First John says, we love because you first loved us. So we can't even begin to express these facets of love if we have not first experienced your love in our hearts. So always remind us that it comes back to the gospel of our salvation, that because we're saved, because we're new creatures in Christ, because of the Holy Spirit in our lives, because of grace, we are empowered to put these on display. And Lord, if we're honest with ourselves, we know we struggle. We, we, I look back at my, my past week, even this past few days, how, how short I've fallen in these areas of truly loving others. So that's why we need to keep our eyes fixed on you, Jesus. That's why we need your grace. That's why we need your mercy. We know that when we fail, it's not the end. You continue to love us even when we fail. Help us to love others when they fail us. Help us to be patient. Help us to be kind. Help us to not be boastful or bragging or to be rude or to be bitter or irritable or to be gossiping. Help us to endure and to bear and, and to love one another and come alongside and encourage one another. Help us to always remember that love never ends when it comes from you. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.